you've been with us for a while, we've been slowly working our way through the book of Genesis. Um, we're taking a break from that for the next four weeks. And uh, we, we have a question put in front of us. And the question is, why did God become human? Each week of Advent, we're going to take a look at a different reason why God became human. Um, as always, as we work through some stuff this morning, if you have questions, you can jump on slido.com, type in RevCDA in the box, and type in your questions there, and we'll interact with those uh, at the end of the message today. Um, you can turn it, well, we're going to be kind of a different, couple different places in, in the Bible. So you can, you can put your finger in Isaiah, but we'll be in a couple other places as well. But while you're finding that, um, let's pray. Lord God, thank you for an opportunity to be in this place, to be gathering here uh, in safety and security and warmth uh, when so many of your people don't experience those things. God, help us to be grateful people uh, coming off of this season of Thanksgiving where um, we, uh, as, as hard as we try, at least for me, it, 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 it switches to Black Friday deals really quick, uh, and my covetousness and my jealousy and my greed float to the surface. God, I just pray that, that we would be people that, first of all, recognize these things in our souls and, and take the time to seek you, the power of your spirit, to combat them. God, I want to pray for, um, just for my friend Dylan and his, uh, um, sounds like he's got a tonsil infection. And I just pray that you would heal his body uh, so that he can gather with uh, your people again. Pray for Matt, uh, who is uh, just lonely, God. And um, God, I just pray that you would meet him where he's at, that you'd be with him and, and equip your body to uh, meet him as well. I pray for uh, many in our Congregation that are ill, some that are on vacation, traveling for the holiday. And God, I just pray that as we enter into this season, that we would just have an awareness of your beauty, your glory, your everlasting kindness to us. And that we would be lights as we work, as we play, as we shop. Um, we interact with our neighbors, that we would have an answer for the hope that lives within us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, I want to show you a graphic. This is a picture that I pulled off of Facebook a couple years ago. Do we have it, Trevor? There it is. It says, dance like Frosty, shine like Rudolph, give like Santa, love like Jesus. And, and I, I, if, you, if you were here a few years ago, like 2019, I think, is when I showed this off the first time, and I haven't forgotten it because I hate it so much. <laughs> um, and the problem is, I mean, it, it feels nice, but we got like, do a fun thing like a fictional character, do another fun thing like a fictional character, do another fun thing like a fictional character, and then do another fun thing like, Jesus, wait a second. 
And the intention, I believe, is probably good. Most stuff like this is good. But, but the execution just doesn't work because Jesus is not a claymation fairy tale. He's not a fictional reindeer. He's not even a Christian saint who's turned into this weird elf myth. He's a real human being. And he's also the son of God. And this is, this is the problem <laughs> with what could be called American civil religion. We are a people that have this Christian heritage in our country. And, and that's a good thing in some ways. I mean, for instance, the, the birthday of our king, the birthday of our savior is a national holiday in this country. That's a pretty big deal. There are countries in this world where Christmas isn't a day off. We don't celebrate this God of the Christians. And so it's a huge privilege to be an American and to have that kind of uh, structure around our faith. But there's also a bad side to this Christian civil religion in, in that everyone, whether you're Christian or not, just kind of engages with this holiday, sometimes in good ways, but sometimes in really terrible ways. I think every year there's this, uh, this battle over Starbucks cups. Do you know this battle? Like, they, they're not sufficiently Christian enough. Like, most of the time they're just like red and green stripes, but they're like, it's the war on Christmas. They're not, they're not preaching the gospel through their cups. And I think, do, I, do we want Starbucks in charge of that? Is that the role that we want them playing in our society? I'm not so sure it is. Just, I just prefer the red cups. <laughs> See, the civil religion of the United States has helped to create a culture that has completely changed the historic meaning of the season of Advent for everyone, including Christians. And most of us don't even realize it. Our celebration of this season is so often deeply tied to gluttony and greed and covetousness not to mention the weird ways that we bring violence and sexuality into it. And I think Advent for us should be a time to pause and to push back against that a little bit. And I want to challenge myself and, and all of us this year to begin to see Advent differently if maybe we haven't before. And so as I talked about in the announcements, I want us to be people that focus on giving. And that looks like a lot of different things. There's going to be some opportunities corporately as a community to give, but there's probably some opportunities individually as, as you know people, as you interact with your neighbors and friends that you can set aside things that you would keep for yourselves in this season and actually give them away. I also want to talk about something that, in, that is maybe extra challenging for us, and that's the topic of fasting. I mentioned it last week, but traditionally, the season of Advent for the church has not been a season of celebration. Celebration starts on Christmas. Christmas is its own season that starts on the 25th, and Advent is the season of preparation that leads up to it. And this season of preparation is about reflection and hopeful waiting on the coming of the King. And then as we work through God's word over the next four weeks, I want to answer the question, why did God become 
human. I want to talk about the theology of what's called the incarnation. Incarnation means in flesh. How as we read the scriptures, we come to understand that the eternal God, the king of the universe, became a human being. How does that work? What does that mean? Why does it matter? So, we will spend most of our time this Advent season talking about the incarnation, but this morning we'll, we'll, we'll hit two different topics. And the first one I want to talk about is fasting, because we, we need a running start for that. Um, if we see Advent as a season of discipline and repentance and preparation for the Christmas holiday, those things involve fasting. And I know some of you have probably completely tuned me out at this point. You're not doing that. But I would just encourage you to give me a chance. We, we've been taught as, as we, why, why, would you, why would you want to do that? Why would you want to not eat? We've been taught, I think, through our culture that we are primarily brains, right? We are, we are mental, intellectual beings, and we just are carried around in these bodies. Maybe in the church, we've got some words like soul. We, we are a soul. We have a body, that kind of thing. There's this mental, intellectual, emotional, spiritual, real us, and then there's our body, which is kind of a throwaway thing. And so growing up, I was, talked to, I was taught about fasting, and I was told that fasting is, is something where you, you get hungry, and when you're hungry, it's a trigger that helps you go, oh, I should go pray right now. I should go think about God. And that's not a bad idea, but it's not a complete idea. Because see, the Bible doesn't envision human souls that just happen to have bodies. Scripture consistently paints the ideal human as one that is a unified whole, immaterial and material, that are working together. And, and, and thankfully, I mean, if you've recognized medicine and health has, over the, the last few years, kind of come to this understanding, like, you've got a problem, well, you do, do you need a prescription? Do you need therapy? Do you need exercise? Do you need a vacation? All of those things might be the right answer to whatever's going on inside of you because you're not just a brain on legs. You are a unified whole. John Mark Comer, in some of his work on fasting, calls fasting drawing on the Spirit's power, not through your mind, but through your stomach. Does that sound weird to you? It does to me. But if our, our souls and our bodies are deeply connected to make us whole people, then, then, what, then what is the benefit of fasting? Number one, fasting will, will show you who you really are. Fasting will reveal your inner self to you. It will show you your idols and your sinful proclivities. It will unearth the things that you are addicted to. If you ever excuse a bad temper or an insensitive comment to being hangry, anybody do that? Anybody use that word? Yeah, nobody wants to raise their hand. That's a sign that food is controlling your soul, isn't it? I can't be held responsible for the sin that I'm committing because I haven't eaten breakfast yet. Uh-oh, that's a problem. See, fasting is a tool that Jesus gives us to help get to the root of that sort of thing. Secondly, fasting will loosen your bondage to many 
different sins. Arthur Wallace, on his, in his book on fasting, says, when we cannot say no to the second helping of the food we like, though we do not need it, when we are forever having snacks between regular meals, when we crave special foods that tick, tickle the palate and appeal to our fastidious appetites, when, in a word, food is an ever-present temptation to which we constantly yield, then it is clear we are in bondage. See, food is a message we are sent from our bodies that we rarely ignore, at least not for long. And by practicing saying no to food, we gain experience in saying no to other things. I heard it said once that if you can teach yourself to say no to a cheeseburger, you can teach yourself to say no to pornography. Fasting is practice saying no to sin and temptation. Thirdly, fasting will bring you joy. John Mark Comer again says, when fasting, we decide of our own accord to not give our bodies what they want, food. As a result, when somebody else decides not to give us what we want, we don't freak out, rage, or go ballistic on Twitter. We've trained our souls to be happy and at peace, even when we don't get our way. This is so countercultural, especially in the season we're coming into, where everything we do is supposed to be instantaneous. We're supposed to get our way. We're supposed to get what we want. And by practicing saying no to something, we train ourselves for the time when something is withheld from us, and we will not lose our joy. And then fourthly, maybe most importantly, Jesus told us to do this. Whenever you fast, he says, don't be gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces so that their fasting is obvious to people. Truly, I tell you, they have their reward. But when you fast, put oil on your head, wash your face so that your fasting isn't obvious to others, but to your father who is in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus doesn't say, if you decide to fast, if you're one of those weird Christians that thinks fasting is a thing, he, he just assumes that God's people will fast, that this is one of the spiritual disciplines that we will engage in as followers of Jesus. And for some reason, our church culture has com- almost completely abandoned this practice. It's kind of weird. Like, like, imagine a church community where, like, you just didn't pray. Like, oh, yeah, we don't do that anymore. Like, but Jesus told us to. Oh, well, yeah, we don't, we don't really read the Bible anymore because we don't like it. Like, but at what point are you, do you cease to be a functioning community of Jesus' people when we just say, we're just not going to do these things? So what, a better, what better time is there to practice fasting as a church community than the season of Advent? a season where we are reflecting on the fact that the world is broken, reflecting on the fact that we need our king to come, that the only hope that we have to make things right is that Jesus will fix it. As we think about the first advent and the people of Israel longing for their king to bring them freedom, and we look ahead to the second advent, the day when Jesus will return and make all things new, we live in this expectant hope. And so this advent, I'm challenging myself and I'm challenging all of you 
to incorporate a rhythm of fasting into your season. So how are we going to do this? Well, you're free to do it however you want, but I'm going to provide some guardrails, some guidelines. There's this great little book called the Didache, or the Teaching of the Twelve Apostles. It was written by uh, the generation that came after the apostles died. It was a manual for running a church. And in the Didache, it just says straight up, you should fast on Wednesdays and Fridays. (laughs) Done. So is this the Bible? No, it's not the Bible. Should we be bound by this instruction? No. But Christian communities started living their lives this way immediately after the time of the New Testament. And so it seems reasonable that that's maybe a model that we could learn from. So this is my challenge for the next four weeks before Christmas. Wednesdays and Fridays, commit yourself to fasting. What does that look like? I don't know. That depends on who you are. Maybe it means 24 hours from dinner on Tuesday night to dinner on Wednesday night. Maybe it means, you know, all I can do is skip breakfast or lunch, or maybe I won't eat until dinner. Maybe I'll eat, but all I'll eat is bread and water, a real simple meal. Ask the Lord how you should participate in this Advent fast. But here's the thing. Fasting is about food because food is something that we need. Oftentimes, especially in the Lenten season, we talk about fasting from social media or ice cream or YouTube or coffee or alcohol or whatever. And those are all good things. Abstaining from good things is always a wise practice to do for seasons. But those aren't needs. You don't, if you stop watching YouTube or stop scrolling Instagram, you won't die. But if you stop eating for long enough, you will. And the intention in fasting is not for us to be sick or ill, but for us to just barely push on that button that says, this is something that I need and I'm going to lay it down. So, That's my brief challenge. Our family's going to be fasting on Wednesdays and Fridays. Uh, I'll be sending out some uh, reminders and some devotional content if you're on our mailing list that will be helpful. And I would just encourage you, instead of just absorbing what our culture says we should be doing this season, and I say this as someone who went to Wendy's and got a peppermint frosty last night. It was delicious. Instead of fully embracing this season as our world tells it, do something a little bit different. Challenge yourself to push back against some of these cultural ideas. Align yourself a little bit more with the historic church. Now, maybe maybe you shouldn't fast. Maybe there's, if you're pregnant, I think, I don't know, I'm type 1 diabetes, maybe that's a thing. I don't know, Matt would know. (laughs) Yeah, talk to your doctor. Talk to one of the doctors that's members of this church. But here's the thing. 99% of us should be able to fast in some way safely. Two days a week, for some period of the day, the next four weeks, train yourself to say no to the temptations of your body. And we'll do it together. And I guarantee you, it will benefit you. So, fasting for Advent, now some incarnation theology. 
This is where we're going for the next four weeks. This is Athanasius. He, is, uh, he was born in the 290s, a uh, long time ago. He is considered one of the four great doc- theological doctors of the Eastern Church. And he was instrumental in fighting an early battle in the church against what's called Arianism. Arianism was a really popular doctrine that almost took over Christianity that said that Jesus wasn't God, he was a created being, an angel, a kind of like second level God. And Athanasius was on the front lines of fighting against this for what we would consider orthodox Christian theology. He was um, a servant of his bishop Alexander in Alexandria, Egypt. He went to the Council of Nicaea in 325. It was a big big deal in church history. And later when Alexander died, he became the bishop of Alexandria all while in his 20s. So, 20-year-olds, what goals do you have? His enemies called him the black dwarf. This is not a great picture because uh, he's, he's a little pale in this picture. He was African and he was short. And a lot of people hated him. So they gave him that nickname. He was exiled by the Roman government five different times in his life, either because the emperors were Arians, they didn't like his theology, or they weren't Christian at all. And he lived his entire life defending the divinity of Jesus against the Arians. He wrote a little book called On the Incarnation, answering the question, if Jesus is really God, why did he become a human being? And so over the next four weeks, we are going to take a look at four different arguments he makes in this book. Um, We're not going to use the book. We're going to use scripture like we always do, but he, he points to four different reasons that scripture tells us that Jesus that God became human. He says, one of them is that it was to fill Old Testament prophecy. One was to defeat death. The third one was to show us what God is like. And the fourth one is to share his divine nature with us. So for the rest of our time this morning, we are going to talk about Old Testament prophecy. When we, when we think about the Old Testament, we've been in the Old Testament book of Genesis for a while, but sometimes we look at the Old Testament and we think like, what is all this stuff? It's hard to understand. It's confusing. There's all of these different characters and people groups, and I can't really keep everything straight. Sometimes there's just weird lists of names. What is going on here? And we have to recognize that The Old Testament is the beginning of this story, the story that God is telling about himself and how he is working through history to have his will accomplished. And at the beginning of what we would call um, the, the AD era, the first century, The Jewish people read their Old Testament religiously. Many of them had it memorized, parts of it, much of it. And they were counting on this story that's being told over hundreds of years coming true. 
They were counting on this story of this king that would come and rescue them. And Athanasius, in his book, he argues to the Jewish people that you missed it. Your king did come. Your king is Jesus Christ. And he says that look at the Old Testament. Look at all of the things that the Old Testament says about this coming king. And look at how Jesus has fulfilled all of these predictions. And this is a really important piece of our understanding of the truth of the gospel. John Phillips writes about Bible prophecy. He says, the Bible is the only book which challenges unbelief by foretelling the future, staking its authority on the ultimate, certain, and complete fulfillment of its detailed predictions. It has been said that there were some 109 Old Testament predictions literally fulfilled at Christ's first coming, and that of the 845 quotations from the Old Testament and the New Testament, 333 refer to Christ. There are some 25 prophecies concerning the betrayal, trial, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus uttered by various prophets over a period of some 500 years. These were literally fulfilled, although the chances against such fulfillment have been shown to be one chance in 33,554,438. If the law of compound probabilities is applied similarly to all 109 predictions fulfilled at Christ's first coming, the chances that they could be accidentally fulfilled in the history of one person is one in billions. See, holding up the life of Jesus to the prophecies about the coming king, the Messiah in the Old Testament, is statistically impossible to have been a coincidence. And if you're, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning, or you're familiar with, with um, arguments about, uh, about this subject, and you would say, well, like, what if Jesus just, you know, he, he, he knew the prophecies, and he just made sure to complete them. And that's definitely possible for some of them. I mean, he, there's the one about riding into town on a donkey. He could have like arranged for that. But he couldn't arrange the town he was born in. He couldn't arrange the way that he was treated when he was crucified. There are many, many parts of the prophetic record that talk about the coming king that Jesus had no power and no control over orchestrating. And this is the beginning of our answer to the question, why did God become human? Because he said he would. From the very beginning of the story, we learn that the solution to the problem of all the brokenness in this world will come through a human being. So real quickly, I want to take a look at three passages, all from different parts of the Old Testament, that begin to give us shape to the humanity of our Savior. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 3.15. If you're using the Pew Bible, we'll be on page 3. This is the, almost the very beginning of the story, right? Uh, God has created a perfect space for the first humans to live in, and they are thriving until they are deceived by the serpent and they sin. They don't trust in God for their life. They go their own way. Genesis 3, starting in verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. 
I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Adam and Eve had listened to the serpent and betrayed God by pursuing wisdom outside of God's plan for their lives. They decided they couldn't trust God to care for them. They had to do it on their own. And this little thing that they did, this little decision that they made, completely fractures the universe. And we pay the cost of it every single day as we fight with all of the broken, wicked things around us. It's utterly devastating. And God, finally, he comes to the snake and he curses the snake. He draws battle lines. This war between the seed of the woman and the seed of the snake is going to go on for generations. But one of the offspring of the woman, a human being, will kill the snake at the cost at the cost of his own life. And so from the very beginning of this story, the, just a third chapter in, we are primed to expect that the hero is a human being. Then turn over to Isaiah 7, verse 10 through 14. This is the, the passage that Sarah read this morning. It's on page 606 in the Pew Bible. In this passage, the king of Judah, the God's people, the descendants of Abraham have, have created this nation. And the king of Judah, he's a wicked king. He doesn't trust in Yahweh. And he's being threatened by the kings of Israel and Syria. And he's worried that he will be destroyed. The prophet Isaiah comes to him and tells him that God will protect him and his people. And in order to, to put a seal on this promise, to give him some hope, he says, Ask for a sign from the Lord your God. It can be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Ask for something crazy, Ahaz, to prove to you that I'm telling the truth. But Ahaz replied, I will not ask. I will not test the Lord. He's he's not being sincere here. He doesn't care about the Lord. Isaiah said, listen, house of David. He's not talking to Ahaz anymore. He's talking to the whole community. It is, not, is it not enough for you to try the patience of men? Will you also try the patience of my God? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. See, the virgin will conceive, have a son, and name him Emmanuel. So what's the sign of the victory of God over his people's enemies? A virgin will give birth to a son. And he will be called Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. So God's, if you've been with us in Genesis, we've seen that God's promise to Abraham gets clearer and clearer as time goes on, right? It was just kind of this vague, like, leave your land and go where I tell you. And then by the end of the story, he's very clear about what his descendants will be like. And and this is how the prophecies of the Messiah work as well. We saw early, early on that the the seed of the woman is going to crush the head of the seed of the snake. But now this this human being that's going to be born is going to be born of a virgin. And there's going to be something special about this human being that he would be called God with us. And again, maybe maybe you're thinking like, well, I've heard that that there's a mistranslation in this verse, that the, the word doesn't mean virgin, it just means young woman. 
And that's not entirely false. The, the Hebrew words for virgin and young woman are kind of interchangeable, and sometimes they mean what we, would be, what we would consider a virgin, and sometimes they just mean a young woman of kind of childbearing age, and it really depends on the context. Um, but one of my favorite old teachers, John Chrysostom, says this, were she not to be a virgin, the birth would not have been a sign. A sign is something that differs from the normal way things happen that is outside the natural manner. A sign is so unusual and unexpected that someone who sees it or hears of it sees that it is out of the ordinary. It's called a sign because it is significant. For the birth to be like normal births, it would not have been significant. If the prophecy is about a woman giving birth in the normal manner, like what happens every day, then why call it a sign? I think that makes a lot of sense. Come on, Ahaz, pick out, just ask, ask God for something that's crazy as crazy as you can think to prove God's faithfulness to you. And Ahaz is like, no, nah, I don't want to do it. So Isaiah says, okay, I will do it for you. Some girl's going to have a baby. Like, well, that's not really a sign. No, but a virgin is going to conceive. That's something that doesn't happen every day. That's something that's unique. So this part of the puzzle adds to our understanding of who this Savior is. He will be a human being, but he will be born miraculously without the participation of a man, and he will be called God with us. Something about the life of this man will indicate that God is uniquely a part of his work. And I think it's important to note, too, every time we get to Advent, I think it's, um, it's helpful to, to just kind of push back against Many of us, and I include myself in this, many of us have grown up in the evangelical church with kind of an anti-Catholic bias. And so in the Catholic uh, and um, some of the other, uh, the Eastern Orthodox faith, they, they put Mary in a place that, that I think is, is not the place that she should be in. And because of that, we tend to swing completely to the other side of that discussion and be like, Mary's dumb and Mary's boring and we don't care about Mary. But Mary's amazing. Mary, the honor and the worth given to Mary as the mother of Jesus, the human mother of God, is huge. And she should be respected and honored, especially in the season of Advent. We should read her song in, in, uh, um, in the Gospels. It's amazing. The fact that she was chosen for the job that she was given and how hard it was and how faithful she was in it, she is an example to us as Christians. Just a side note. One more passage. Something about this, something about this human being will be divine. Daniel, chapter 7, page 790 in the Pew Bible. In Daniel 7, the prophet Daniel, who lives in Babylon, his, his people have been exiled there because of their disobedience, but he is a faithful representative of his God in the midst of a pagan empire. He has a vision, and he sees all of these animals, these beasts, and they're all ferocious and weird, and they represent human empires, because that's the reality of human empires, is, is they are broken, and they are destructive, and they eat people. And they're ravaging the world, one right after the other. 
And in Daniel 7, verse 9, we read, As I kept watching, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white like snow, and the hair of his head like whitest wool. His throne was flaming fire. Its wheels were blazing fire. God's throne has wheels. That's pretty cool. A river of fire was flowing and coming out of his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I watched then because of the sound of the arrogant words the horn was speaking. The horn is on one of these beasts. As I continued watching, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to the burning fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was removed, but an extension of life was granted to them for a certain period of time. I continued watching in the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was escorted before him. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. So Daniel is having an apocalyptic vision, which is always really hard to understand when we get to those in Scripture. But this scene takes place in what's called the divine council. This is an area where where God has set up his throne room, and there's all these thousands of his angels and subjects surrounding him, and he sets up this courtroom scene to judge the empires of the world. And these beasts that have ravaged the earth with their sinful, wicked behavior, they're destroyed by one like a son of man, a human being. And the way I imagine this in, in my reenactment of Daniel's vision is there's this, there's this scene in one of the Marvel movies where there's this giant spaceship coming down to destroy our heroes. And then all of a sudden, inside the spaceship, there's all these explosions But you don't know why the spaceship is exploding until you see that uh, Captain Marvel flies out of it. Because she's been inside the spaceship, like, wrecking it up. She flies out and it's destroyed. And this is what I envision in this scene, that, that we see these beasts being destroyed. And it's like, why are they being destroyed? And all of a sudden, this human being rises up from the earth on the clouds and shows up in the presence of God. And Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, he gives him the world as his kingdom, which will last forever. And so what do we learn about this human, this savior? The first thing we learn is that he's, um, he rides the clouds, right? You see that? Like he he came on the clouds. And and this is important because this isn't the only time we see this in the Bible. In Psalm 104, we read, my soul, bless the Lord. Lord, my God, you are very great. You are clothed with majesty and splendor, and he wraps himself in light, as it were a robe, spreading out the sky like a canopy, laying the beams of his palace on the waters above and making the clouds his chariot, walking on the wings of the wind. This is a song about Yahweh. Psalm 68, similarly, sing to God, sing praises to his name, exalt him who rides on the clouds. His name is Yahweh, and celebrate before him. And we see that all the nations are called to serve him as God. The word serve in this passage is only ever used in the book of Daniel in reference to God. Verse 27, the kingdom, dominion, and greatness of the kingdoms under all of heaven will be given to the people, the holy ones of the most high. 
His kingdom will be an everlasting kingdom, and all rulers will serve and obey him. So this is just a few of the little pieces of news throughout the Old Testament. There's this, someone is coming. Someone, this, a human being is coming, and he will put all things right. This, this human being that is also kind of God with us. And what does that mean? I don't know. A little later on, this, this human being is actually going to take the place of Yahweh. He's going to have the characteristics of the God of the universe. He's going to destroy all of the world empires and rule in peace forever. And then when Jesus comes on the scene, his favorite title for himself is the Son of Man. He calls himself the Son of Man from Daniel 7. It gets him into trouble because his enemies know what he's saying. So as we, as we wrap up, I think a good question to ask is like, why does this matter? Right? Why does it matter that Old Testament prophecies talk about the coming of Christ? And on the one hand, I think it's totally fine if, if you just want to geek out about that. Like there's way more prophecies in the Old Testament about Jesus than we had time for. And you could spend days and days searching through the Old Testament and looking at how Jesus perfectly fulfilled these predictions. That over hundreds of years, the Jewish people are getting this ever more detailed picture of who their Savior is going to be. But I think there's some other reasons why this is important. Number one, prophecy is an evidence of God's power. The quote I read earlier from um, Professor Phillips said that that, that the Bible is is pretty bold in saying, hey, this is what's going to happen in the future. And if it doesn't, the words of this book are false. Uh, God says it himself in Isaiah 46, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago what is not yet done, saying my plan will take place and I will do all my will. If you read the chapter, Isaiah 46 is, is all about how God, Yahweh God, is better than the gods of the nations. He's smarter and stronger. And he says, I'm the only one out there that can predict the future and be right 100% of the time. Secondly, prophecy helps us to get to know Jesus better. And I want to read a fairly long passage from Luke 24. It's probably familiar to you. It's called the, The Disciples on the Road to Emmaus. Now that same day, two of them were on the way to a village called Emmaus, which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus came near and began to walk along with them. They were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked him, asked them, what is this dispute that you're having with each other as you're walking? And they stopped walking and looked discouraged. The one named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that are happening in these days? What things? He asked them. So they said to him, the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that, it had been seen by a vi- that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. 
he said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Old Testament, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther, but they urged him, stay with us because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So we went in and stayed with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. And they said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? See, in that moment, these disciples got an understanding of Jesus that they didn't have before, and it came from connecting him to the Old Testament and all the places that talked about him. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, if, if you're married and, and uh, your spouse has like old home movies. And, you know, when they were like three or four or five years old and, and you, you get to watch them, you see how, you know, their parents interact with them and you're like, oh, I understand why you're all screwed up now, <laughs> right? <laughs> like you learn a lot about somebody by learning about their past. And these disciples, they were filled with this, they they, said their hearts were burning. They were filled with this beautiful yearning for Jesus. They didn't know it was him, but they were learning about him as he talked to them about who he was from the Old Testament. And I think as we spend time looking at these things, we learn about Jesus in ways that we wouldn't otherwise. And lastly, fulfilled prophecy should give us hope. Jesus' first coming, his first advent, fulfilled many of the prophecies of the Old Testament. But we today, we're we're on the other side of his first advent. He's already come. He was already crucified for our sins. He rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand of the Father. We are waiting for his second advent, his second coming. And Jesus returns again to make all things right. And there are many prophecies in the scriptures that speak of that day. It's easy for us to get discouraged by life and lose hope for the future. Future is it's unknown. It's anxiety-inducing. It's the source of our worries. But the fact that Jesus fulfilled so much prophecy the first time he came can give us confidence that he will fulfill the promises of prophecy concerning his second coming. That someday, maybe soon, Jesus will step back into this world and put an end to evil once and for all. That he will gather his people up and usher us into a new kingdom free from sin and death. And that he will rule and reign over this new world of goodness and grace with us forever. And Christian, this is what you have to look forward to. That you can look back into the past and see that God promised a human being would come and solve the problem of sin. And recognize that Jesus is that human being. Jesus, the God-man, came. 
he will come again. You can be sure that all of this will come to pass because all the other prophecies about Jesus, God becoming human, have already come to pass. And we can hope in that. Let's do some questions. I had this open and now it's gone. There we go. <laughs> What's your opinion on drinking coffee or sparkling water on Wednesdays and Fridays? Uh, <laughs> that's a great question. I think I think if you I don't want to say this. I think we are capable of interrogating our hearts and figuring out if the things that we are doing are being done out of a lack of self-control, out of a temptation to sin, out of um, a desire to bend the rules, or not. And if, if you want to create a fasting regimen that allows for sparkling water, and you can do that without a guilty conscience, then you should do that. But if you're asking the question because you need me to give you permission to do something that you know you shouldn't be doing, then you definitely shouldn't drink sparkling water while you're fasting. <laughs> But here's the thing, and, and this, is, this is our only question this morning, so I'm going to talk about this for just a second. The tendency for any kind of spiritual discipline is that we make it legalistic, is that we do the thing and we make the thing the most important part. I'm, I, this is my prayer rhythm, or this is my uh, fasting schedule, or this is how I read my Bible, and, and the intent becomes not drawing close to Christ, but checking off the spiritual to-do list. And then that morphs into like, oh, this is what I do. What do you do? Oh, you don't do that. I'm just a better Christian than you are. I'm farther along and I'm more mature and I feel sorry for you. And that's just wicked all the way around. And so the second we take spiritual discipline and turn it on ourselves as a weapon of superiority against one another, or we turn it on our own selves as a, as, a, as a way to shame us. I didn't read my Bible today, or I, 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 I was fasting, but then I, I forgot, and I had some sparkling water, and now Jesus doesn't love me anymore. Like, that's just not how this works. The intent of all of these kinds of spiritual practices is to draw us closer to Christ. And so, then that's why, like, I'm offering a framework for us to fast this Advent, but I'm not dictating a rule. 
because we're all in a different place and we all have different needs. And I'm going to say, I trust you to seek the Lord and be in a place where you can go like, this is what I'm going to do as an act of devotion and self-sacrifice. And um, I'm going to believe that God is going to honor that in practicing it. So yeah, if, if you're in a place where like, you, and I know, I know some of you are like this, I live with someone like this, where tell me the rules. I need all the rules. You can, you can make some rules for yourself, but you can't hold other people to them. And you have to show yourself grace when you break them, because you will. All right. Good question, though. We're going to take communion. The night that Jesus was betrayed was a night packed with fulfilled Old Testament prophecy. And in that meal that he was celebrating with his disciples, he instituted what we call the Lord's Supper. And as part of that institution, he said this in Matthew 26. He said, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jesus himself issues a prophecy about himself that night. He says, I will be with you in my Father's kingdom. I will still be human, and I will drink wine with you and eat this bread with you together. And this is one part of the reality of the communion meal that we are invited to reflect on every week. We eat and drink from the communion table as a reminder that one day we will all feast together with Jesus in his kingdom. And so on this first Sunday in Advent, as we reflect on the first coming of Christ and the way that the scriptures predicted it before it happened, I would invite you to come up and take the elements of the communion back to your seat and reflect on the second coming of Christ. And remember that the scriptures have already told us that he will return. He will make all things new. He will right all the wrongs. He will dry all the tears. And take the bread and the cup. And as we sing together, just worship the one human being that has been given honor and glory and a kingdom that will last forever. You're welcome to sit or stand as we sing. There's... um, wine and juice per the dictates of your conscience up at the communion table and come up and leave the elements and take them back to your seat. You're also welcome to use the prayer rugs if you'd like to kneel while you worship. Let's pray. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.